Good morning, everybody. Uh, Happy New Year to you again. And uh, my name's Ryan, and with this new year, we are starting a new series, which I'll talk about here in just a moment. Um, Before I read the text, let me just add my words of gratitude to the Lord and to all of you for um, allowing us to meet our financial goal at the end of the year end, and not just meet it, but exceed it. Uh, I hope that's an encouragement to you uh, as much as it's encouragement to your leadership as, uh, as we see many of you participating in what the Lord is doing here and at our sites at Fairfax and, uh, and Herndon as well. Um, and I just was thinking this morning as I was thinking about what to share with you along those lines that uh, this week marks our two-year anniversary of being here and uh, it's just a good time to thank you once again for having the privilege to be your senior pastor. We really uh, count that as a privilege, and, uh, and we're excited to be here and excited to start this new series with you in the book of Genesis. Genesis 1 and 2 will be our focus over the next nine weeks, and you'll see on the front of your bulletin the title of that series is A True or The, the True and Better Story. Um, there's a couple of reasons we're calling it that. First of all, when Genesis was first given to God's people through Moses, they were in desperate need of a true and better story. They were coming out of hundreds of years of slavery in Egypt, and you can imagine uh, the effect that must have had on their sense of identity. If you go generation after generation, and that's what was happening, generation after generation of being oppressed of being told that you're not just a nuisance, but that you really are not worth anything, that has an effect on your own sense of worth and dignity. And not only that, but they were immersed in a foreign culture that believed very different things about just about everything, including God, or in, in the case of the Egyptian gods, and what that meant as far as what it meant to be a human being, what it meant to be... Um, in the case of Pharaoh, what it meant to be Pharaoh, a son of the divine here on earth, and all of the other stories that went along with that. And so there's a sense in which Genesis is is entering into that competing narrative of what it means to be a human being. And it's God saying to his people, no, there is a true and a better story that you need to know, a story that tells you who God is, tells you what it means to be made in his image, tells you what it means to be made with inherent dignity and value, tells you what it means to find beauty in the differences that God has built into what it means to be made in his image. God is telling us, as he was telling them, a true and better story. And I would suggest to you this morning, and I will bring this uh, before us over the next few weeks, that we live in a time in which we need to hear the true and better story. Because we live in a time in which there is fierce competition to narrate your life, to tell you where you came from, to tell you who you are, to tell you what it means to be fully alive, to answer all the questions of life with competing narratives. And even though Genesis is an ancient story, it is our story, it is the human story. And so we're going to begin uh, at the beginning with Genesis 1. Uh, you'll see in your bulletin, Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. And, uh, and then we're going to add, it, this is not in your bulletin, but part of it will be on the screen here in a moment, um, John 17, verses 1 through 5 and 20 
through 26. And I'll explain in a moment why we're, we're, we're going to include that passage as well. So Genesis 1-1, hopefully is kind of easy to find. It's literally the first verse in the Bible. Um, John 17 may not be as easy if you're not familiar with the Bible, but if you just kind of keep working your way to the right, you get to uh, the gospel of John. And I would encourage you just to have your finger in John chapter 17, beginning with verse 1. And just to set that up, um, that is uh, a prayer that Jesus offers uh, the night he's arrested, the night before he goes to the cross. So Genesis 1-1, and I'll read 1-1 and 2 just to make it interesting. And um, that is really the beginning of the story. And we need to pay attention to the beginning of the story. But what I really want to talk about today is what happens before the beginning of the story. And that's where John 17 comes in. So let's give our attention this morning to God's word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The Gospel of John, chapter 17 Verses 1 through 5, that won't be up there, but then um, beginning with verse 20 will be. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Verse 20, I do not ask, these for, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through your word that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we pray now that you would open our hearts, that we might see wonderful things in this portion of your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'd love for you to take a second, if you haven't already taken out the postcard that we've, that we've included in your bulletin, if you just want to take it out for a moment, and then for some of you, you need to take out your readers as well, because um, I want you to read the back of it. Okay, I see that's happening, excellent. Uh, movement in the room, good. New Year's off to a good start. You're listening carefully to directions. I want you to flip it over, and I just want you to take a glance at the various topics that we're going to talk about. 
over the next few weeks. There's today, and then next week, creation, and then the next week, gender, dignity, diversity, work, rest, marriage, singleness, sex. That's one week. Sin, death, promise, that's one week as well. Notice all of those are referenced in Genesis because this true and better story is really the true and better story that encompasses all of human life, even all the questions that we are asking these days about what it means to be a human being. Um, Now, today we're going to talk about the Trinity, which when I look at this list, feels kind of like a piece of cake, actually. Today's a light lift, talking about the Trinity, the nature of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, one substance, um, power, and eternity. That's, that seems like a light lift compared to some of these topics because most of your friends are not asking you about the finer, the finer points of the doctrine of the Trinity, are they? Um, most of the questions you're getting are questions that have to do with these type of issues. Um, this past week, the, the conversation at the holiday gathering. Your brother-in-law did not want to talk to you about the heresy of Arianism. That, 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 that wasn't what he wanted to talk about. He wanted to talk to you about what you, if you're a Christian here today, what you as a Christian think about transgender rights. Um, the questions your kids are asking you are not, um, uh, mommy, daddy, just help me understand again how it is that God can be one being in three persons. I don't think I understand that. Um, What they want to know is why people in the world think that Christians hate gay people. Um, The questions that you're getting at work uh, have to do with, like, what are we going to do about the memo that just came down from from, uh, the higher-ups about use of pronouns and uh, use of pronouns in in my signature block? You know, they're not asking you questions about uh, the controversies of third-century Trinitarian theology. Uh... And those are hard questions to answer for all kinds of different reasons. Those are complicated questions and challenging questions, but also really important questions to get our heads around. So if you're wondering, why in the world are we doing this? Uh, you may be thinking, uh, just if it's any consolation, your pastors will, will occasionally be asking the same question, why in the world are we doing this? But the reason we're doing this is because these are the questions that this generation has put before us. We have a responsibility to, ask, to answer those questions with clarity and with compassion. Now, why is it that these are the questions that are being asked? This is a, this, there's probably a longer answer to that question of why now? Why are these are the questions we're asking now? A friend of mine recently wrote this, and I think he's right uh, in making this observation. He writes this, what makes Christianity implausible, and what he's saying, implausible to many people now, in our time is less about intellectual doubts and more about ethical concerns, particularly among the the younger generation. So youthful skeptics, he writes, are not wrestling with whether Christianity is true, but whether Christianity is good. In other words, Christianity's implausibility is not its supposed inability to meet intellectual demands, but rather ethical demands. Defeater beliefs have been replaced by defeater ethics. Now, I think he's mostly right. He's simplifying some things. And I think, for example, the generational language is somewhat simplified. It's probably true to an extent. 
But I think the questions that are before us are really questions for every generation. I think we're all asking them in different ways. I also don't think he's saying that intellectual demands are unimportant. Some of us have really serious doubts, like intellectual doubts about our faith, and all of us in our Christian journey have to work through those. And those haven't gone away, and they will never go away completely. But I think the burden has shifted so that as Again, those of us who are Christians who want to be able to answer these questions well for ourselves and for our kids and our grandkids and our friends and our neighbors, I think the obligation here is not just to articulate Christianity as true, but also as beautiful, as better, such that we would be known as Christians not just for what we are against, but we, what we are for. And this is part of the reason we go to Genesis, because Genesis actually, when you listen carefully to what the true and better story is, you recognize that what's being presented, what's being offered is a positive vision for human flourishing. It's going to take us a while to get there. We're going to have to think through what it says and how it connects with our lives. But this is what God gives us in Genesis, a positive vision for human flourishing in every way, in every way. So this means we're going to have to resist an immediate temptation that some of you, as soon as you picked up this card, your temptation was to say, it is about time, it is about time that we are going to set all those people straight, right? We're going to let everybody know the truth about these things, in fact, you're already think, you've already written names next to each one. Like, I'm going to send, it, send the sermon to this person. I'm going to send it to that person. Like, there are people who need to hear this. And as I've said to you before, as soon as you say that, the next thing I want you to say is, actually, that person is me. The church needs to receive what we read in Genesis 1 and 2. The church, Christians need to receive this as the true and better story of what it means to be a human being. Let me just put it this way. If when we get to topics like gender, when we get to topics like sexuality, when we get to topics like diversity, and we get to topics like work, uh, and we begin to talk about how God designed these things to bring joy and freedom and enrich our lives, um, if we only see those things as true but not beautiful, at some point, we'll begin to resent those boundaries that God has placed in our lives. Or, if we just see them as beautiful, but not true in the sense that they're optional, like one option of many, like eventually we're going to reject them because God makes demands on us in these ways. But when we begin to receive God's word as the true and beautiful story, it actually invites us into freedom and joy, the joy that he has designed for us in life. And to do that is gonna, it's gonna be a tall order. It's gonna be a tall order for those of us presenting these things, it's gonna be a tall order for you. Um, so one thing you need to know, th th this may be the longest sermon introduction of all time, and I'm not done yet, so just hang in there for a second. Um, when was the last time you were begging to talk about the Trinity, like right now? Um, one thing you need to know is that there are limits to how much a sermon can do. Like, you know, I'm not going to go on for 55, 60 minutes whew, every single Sunday. Uh, and even that wouldn't do justice to some of these topics. Um, a sermon is just not the forum for long extended conversations. And all of us have very, very practical questions. And I know because you've asked. Um, so 
part of what we're also trying to do, our staff has done an amazing job. If you just kind of, please don't do it now because you will get lost on the website because there's a lot there. But if you look at the, the QR code, if you don't know how to do that, just, just don't worry about it and just go to the website. And, uh, and there are all kinds of resources on there. There are books, there are articles. Um, you're not gonna agree with every single one. Uh, the pastoral staff isn't recommending every single word, um, but there are helpful resources there that we've tried to annotate so that you understand like this, this would be a good one for your family. This would be a good one for you as you're thinking through creation or diversity or whatever the topic might be. In addition to that, um, Terrence and his team have developed a, an ACE, an adult Christian ed curriculum that more or less loosely follows the sermon series, meeting at 1045, and that would be a good place to have a little more interaction. And uh, in addition to that, we haven't listed these dates yet, but we are planning to have some Q&A sessions um, for parents specifically, but also with members of the pastoral staff that will take place over the next nine weeks to give you a chance to begin to interact at a more detailed level, understanding that we can only do so much in a sermon. The other thing I, I just want to say by way of introduction is this, that, that, that for some of you, well, I would say for most of you, for most of you, um, this is not like a research project. This isn't nice to know information. This is deeply personal for you. I mean, I would, I would imagine every single person in this room either knows somebody in your family or in your extended friend group or even you yourself have wrestled or are wrestling with these on a personal level. So please don't hear me saying we're just going to dive in and do a lot of good research and you can go, like, I'm coming at this pastorally to say um, we need each other and we need to have clarity and compassion with each other. And so my goal week in and week out, and the other pastors who are gonna preach the really hard sermons, um, they, we're not here to lecture you, to, to preach at you, but part of loving you, I, I think you need to hear this from the, from, from the beginning, part of loving you is speaking the truth in love. Part of loving you is to imitate Jesus. John 1 tells us that Jesus came full of grace, and truth. So we're going to do that imperfectly, but our desire very much is to say, uh, we are all in this together. We're all messed up in all kinds of different ways. And uh, let's just hear what God has to say about the true and better story. I love the quote. I'm, I'm summarizing it a bit from an early church father who said that the only person who is truly alive is the person who lives to the glory of God. Um, and so in, in a way, that's kind of the theme going forward that we believe that to be fully alive in every way, even in the embodied sense, um, is to live to the glory of God. So we need to figure out what that looks like. Now, with that said, with the time I have remaining, I'd love to talk to you about the Trinity, um, because this is, this is really where I think you have to start. I was telling the pastoral staff on Friday that let's say we had all day together, and, uh, and this was a conference on, you know, on the topic of... of uh, of humanity and, and uh, human sexuality and gender and all that. Uh, there are all kinds of pressing questions around those topics. This is still where I would start. Uh, I still think you have to begin where the Bible begins, which is in the beginning, God. Not in the beginning, you. In the beginning, God. 
And then I think we have to get a little further along than just that, and that's why I've added John chapter 17, because the story, in, in a sense, the true and better story doesn't begin at the beginning, it begins before the beginning. And this is what Jesus is saying. Uh, if, if you noticed in verse five, he says something extraordinary. Remember, he's, he's praying um, the night before he goes to the cross, and he says in verse five, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So Jesus is locating himself before the beginning. Jesus is locating himself with the Father before the world existed. And then we should quickly add that Jesus and the Father weren't just existing, weren't just being, they were in relationship. He goes on at the end of the chapter in verse 24 to say this, I want them to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. What's being described here is not just the existence of God in eternity past, it's the existence of God in relationship. That there was mutual self-giving love, as one person has put it. And not just between the Father and the Son, but if we were to look at other passages, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Uh, Christians have described this, relation, this, this nature of God as the Trinity. It's not a, a word you're going to find in the Bible, but it's a word that, that captures the biblical teaching, the way that God himself has revealed himself as one being in three persons. Our Westminster Confession of Faith puts it like this, that the one true God exists in three persons of one substance, power, and eternity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And perhaps the easiest place to see this, or at least the most clear uh, manifestation of this in Scripture, one of the most clear, is in the baptism of Jesus. I won't have you turn there, but if you were to look at Mark chapter 1, for instance, you would see that when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River, at that moment, a voice, the voice of the Father, thunders from heaven, this is my beloved Son. And then what happens? The Spirit descends like a dove on the Son. There you have the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit glorifying and loving one another. What has been going on for all eternity, what C.S. Lewis calls the divine dance, spills over and is working itself out on the human stage. Now I get this is, uh, this is difficult to grasp. I just gave it you know, I gave it a shot for five minutes and I pointed you to, to just a few passages to think through. The Trinity is notoriously difficult to get our brains around, like your brain circuits just start frying after a while trying to think about one being in three persons. I get that. But think through the implications of this with me for a moment. One person has put it like this. The implications are that the one true God is irreducibly personal and relational irreducibly personal and relational. The late Tim Keller described it like this. He says, look, everybody likes the idea that God is love. I mean, who's not going to give that too enthusiastic thumbs up? God is love. Of course, we all like that idea that God's all about loving and he's, he's made us to love other people. We're on board. But then he asks, why? I mean, how, how, how do you say that God is love? Think about it this way. If, if God were just one person 
for all eternity. He couldn't be love. He couldn't be loving for all eternity because there's no one else to love. Or if God was like an impersonal cosmic force like in Eastern religions, well, he's impersonal. Persons love, not impersonal forces. It is actually the Trinity that gives us the foundation, the anchor that allows us to say, as John does in 1 John chapter 4, that God is love. Now, again, some of you are thinking, all right, that all sounds very interesting. Maybe that's a stretch. Maybe you're looking, thinking, we got to be getting close to the end. Uh, what does that have to do with me? Like, what does that have to do with how I respond to my coworker uh, about these issues? How, how does it help me be a better parent and, and, and walk my kid through this world in which people are, the, the, the world is in chaos over these issues? Like, how does it actually help me make any sort of forward progress in my own thinking about these things? Um, I'm really glad you asked that question, or at least we're thinking that question. If we are going to receive Genesis as the true and better story, I think we have to start here. Because I don't know about you, but when someone tells me what to do, my first instinct isn't, oh, thanks. All right? My first instinct when someone tells me what to do is I resist it. And that's putting it lightly. Maybe I reject it. Eventually, I resent it. And when we start digging into the hard stuff in Genesis, God's going to tell us what to do. And our instinct is going to be to resist, to reject, maybe even to resent as if he's holding out on us, as if he's shortchanging us in all these different areas of our lives. And uh, if we're going to receive it as the true and better story, we have to realize who it is that is giving us this story. Uh, let me just give you an example. Uh, ever since I, I've been uh, in elementary school, uh, off and on, I've had the habit of biting my nails. Anybody else want to admit to that? Raise your little nail-bitten hands up in the air, you nasty little hobbits. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and there's a picture of me in my elementary school yearbook of me biting my nails in the background. Um, and I've always known it's a bad habit. I know it's not healthy, it's not sanitary. Don't think less of me because of it. I've even visited someone in the hospital who was hooked up to an IV with red streaks going up his arm because he had an infection from biting his nails all the way down to the nail bed. That's how nasty it is, nasty. And so, um, you know, every now and then when family's watching a movie, I'm sitting next to my wonderful, loving wife who's here today to testify this is true. And the movie gets nerve-wracking, or watching a, a, you know, a game, and it's, it's getting tense, you know, uh, I'll start biting my nails. And she'll just very gently, I mean, it's not like, but it's like, you know, just kind of gently just like nudge me like, honey, come on. Now, how should I respond to that? I should respond to that by saying, honey, thank you for loving me enough to intervene when I am engaged in such self-destructive behavior. I know it's not good. You know, I don't want to be biting my nails for the rest of my life. Thank you so much. But is that what I do? That's not, okay, I thought you guys might give me the benefit of the doubt. You're like, no. <laughs> no. I growl like the dog when you're trying to get the dog off the couch. I'm like, Err. don't tell me what to do. Our instinct, even when someone is speaking to us about how to live for our good. 
our sinful response is to resist. And the way that we break that resistance is by recognizing that the one who gives us the design that we find in Genesis about what it means to be a man and a woman, what it means to have bodies, what it means to live in those well, he loves us. He wants the best for us, and he knows better than we do what it looks like to flourish as a human being. That's why we start there. The other reason we start there is because um, many of us, when we come to these sorts of issues, whatever they might be, are coming with a lot of unresolved shame and guilt. Okay, because as I said a moment ago, uh, we are all failures in these ways. All of our sexual desires are disordered in some way. All of us struggle against uh, the sorts of questions that are here about what it means to be a man and a woman, what it means to be married, what it means to be single. Like, we're all coming from a place of struggle. And your fear might be that you're going to come in here and then you're going to feel just like, like you're all alone in your struggle. I just want to tell you now and we'll tell you every single week, you're not. You're in good company. Or as parents not knowing even how to have these conversations, you're in good company. And that's why when we begin with before the beginning, we don't just see God in relationship with one another. We see God making plans even for our failure. Listen again to what Jesus says in verse 4 of chapter 17 of John. I glorified you on earth, he says to the Father, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. What's he talking about? He's talking about the work of redemption that the Father gave him in eternity past. This is why 1 Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1 that the Lamb of God was appointed before the foundation of the world. And in Titus chapter 1 that God promised, us our, promised our salvation before the world began. That in Revelation chapter 13, we have the promise that those who have trusted in Christ, our names have been written into the book of life before the foundation of the world. And we read it earlier in our assurance of pardon in Ephesians chapter 1, that you have been chosen in Christ before the world began. That's how far back this story goes your story, not just of how you were made, but how you have been rescued, how we have been redeemed from our failure and our sin. That true and better story extends all the way back to before the beginning. Let me just say, it leads all the way up to this table. This table in which God once again takes the opportunity to tell us how much he loves us in all of our failure, in all of our weakness, and all of our struggle, he meets us here to remind us that we belong to him. Let me pray for us. Father, we are grateful that you have proved your love to us again and again. And you have done so most wonderfully and profoundly in the cross. We pray now that as we come to this table that we would feel welcomed. For in you, Lord Jesus, we are indeed welcomed. Holy Spirit, have your way with us that our lives might look more and more like Jesus. We ask, Lord, that you would do this for your glory and our good. Amen.